0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goals at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Dr. Akila Kadeh to Salt Talks. Uh, Dr. Kadeh is the founder and CEO of Change Kadeh, a consulting firm, which offers a, bri- a broad array of anti-racism and diversity services, including strategic planning, crisis rebuilding, advising, executive coaching and facilitation, all services that we're very much in need of. Uh, We've always been in need of them, but I think at least a light is being shined on some of these issues even more so over the last couple of years. Cadet, which obviously is Dr. Cadet's last name, is a French term that means soldier. Uh, As it's often an uphill battle for uh, women and underrepresented communities to achieve success and equity in the workplace, Change Cadet prepares soldiers of change to overcome these continuous battles so that individuals and companies can thrive because you know, as we have uh, dug into the research on this, having diverse teams drives better outcomes for companies. Um, Dr. Cadet has 15 plus years of experience working in various organizations with both private and public sector companies. She literally has every degree in the book. She lives in Oakland, California. Uh, she has a rare heart condition, which she uh, is open about, and she's a proud Beyonce advocate. But Dr. Cade, let's be honest, aren't we all proud Beyonce advocates. Very true. Uh, hosting today's talk is uh, Sarah Kunst, Managing Director of Clio Capital, a venture capital firm that she founded. Uh, she's going to host today's interview, and I'm going to pipe in when I have questions. So looking forward to sort of an open conversation between the three of us. Uh, and with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Sarah uh, to begin the interview.
1: Hi. Thanks, guys. Super excited to be back on Salt Talks. Um, so, uh, Dr. Kaday and I actually met in a similar format to this. We we got to share a stage at a panel pre-COVID, um, and, and in the years since, we've become friends and co-conspirators. Um, and so, super, super excited to have her here today. Um, so, Dr. Kaday, why don't you start by telling
2: us your story? Of course, thank you, John. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, my story is unfortunately common for most Black women and that is uh, this fun, fun time that I have with the discrimination in the workplace, um, being bullied, being harassed, being too smart, not smart enough, somehow not Black enough, like all these different isms and barriers were coming up. And the final straw for me was being in a position where I really did feel like the Olivia Pope of diversity in the workplace, um, where my boss, white male in his 60s, looked at me in a one-on-one meeting and said, I didn't think you were that smart when I interviewed you, but you are smart. And I was like, wait, um, this is a doctoral level preferred position. My doctoral title is in Leadership and Organizational Behavior. I was in that department. The person, my predecessor had one as well. Um, and so it was just a very interesting thing to say. And so I asked him why he said that. And he said, oh, I guess that's offensive. I'm sorry. I validated that it was. And that I would have to rebuild my relationship and rebuild trust with him. He desired to fire me the next week. Um, And so in that moment, because I had experienced those isms, wanting to fit into someone else's box previously and throughout my career and upon reflection, I was like, what can I do to fix that? So Change Today was actually a side hustle and thats it was an outlet, a way to pour back into myself for not feeling valued in the workplace. And I decided to take a chance on myself and start this business. And six years later, this is what I do. Awesome. Um, that
1: That is great. Um, so, you know, give us kind of an understanding of some like stats or facts or, or not so fun figures of like, what does this problem look like, right? What, what does, we hear, you know, kind of diversity, we need more diversity or there's, you know, Companies aren't inclusive. There's only, you know, even I was shocked when I found that that the newly appointed CEO at at Walgreens was the first, you know, black female CEO ever of a Fortune 500 company. Um, I assumed that somewhere around like 480 on that list, there'd probably be like some industrial company I'd never heard of that had a black female CEO once, right? So, so you know, give us some kind of structure around like where are we at?
2: So that's a that's a big question, I'm gonna just tell you that. Um, to be as succinct as possible, we're in a position where people are dealing with the ramifications of the murder of George Floyd, right? Because we saw a huge shift. He was murdered on May 25th. And then in June, it's like, ooh, Performative allyship, the black square. We need to hire a diversity you know, consulting firm. We need to do something. Wait, are we racist? So all of these questions were, were coming about. Like we don't wanna be part of that. We wanna celebrate our diversity. We wanna add and have more diversity. And so with that shift, people are now in a position where they realize that there's opportunities for growth, continuous learning and unlearning. The black community spends about $1.3 trillion in consumption right? You know, just buying something, loading something whatever it is, they are getting something. And they realize that not only there's a lot of power in the black dollar, but there's also a lot of power in the allyship dollar. So it's a non-black person or a white person who's like, hey, business that I partner with, what are you doing for diversity? Hey, company that I've been buying stuff for a really long time, what's your diversity strategy? You know, hashtag pull up or shut up was a big campaign that's still going on where we're looking at companies who are saying, you know what? we actually have to do better. So we're going to be transparent about our executive leadership, what you're saying, Sarah, with the new, you know, first black woman CEO for a Fortune 500 company and wanting to be transparent. So we're seeing a shift where companies want to hold themselves accountable to show up in the best ways. Now, as a result of that, we're seeing a lot of growing pains (laughs) from companies who are figuring out what does that mean for them? Um, In addition, there is this, pressure that happens externally and internally that makes it really hard for leaders to decide where to go. And that's where there can be, you know, pause or conflict.
1: That's super helpful. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I would love, I kind of touched, I, I had this as a question. You just you've sort of answered it, but would love to dive a little bit deeper, you know, how has your work? You've been doing this for six years. Um, you know, it's now been eight, nine months since since the murder of George Floyd and and you know the the following protests. Um, how have things changed since then? Like, like how much did people care in twenty nineteen, which was only two years ago, versus you know January or February twenty nineteen versus January February twenty twenty one?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It's changed because I can say white supremacy before. Mm-hmm. That wasn't something I could say. People want to learn more about what white supremacy means, realizing it doesn't mean, you know, again, but it doesn't mean KKK or, you know, white supremacists or Proud Boys. It means that, wait, I'm benefiting from something that's ingrained in my society, my daily life, the country, the workplace. I'm realizing I may be adding to systemic oppression of other people who may not have the same privilege as me. And so I can be much more transparent about that. So pre-murder of George Floyd or the Floyd effect as my father likes to call it. Um, it it's like, let's talk about diversity, let's talk about equity, let's talk about inclusion. But now we're having more conversations around belonging and anti-racism. How can companies be anti-racist? And that's the big shift. You also get to see how some of your favorite brands and companies feel much more comfortable being transparent too. I love, love, love ice cream, but I really love Ben and Jerry's, right? So Ben and Jerry's is, is role modeling behavior. Two white guys talking about white supremacy, holding people accountable, using their platform to educate, still selling ice cream, partnering with Know Your Rights Camp and Colin Kaepernick and and showing how, you know, it can be done. So I can have much more transparent conversations. I can meet people where they are at and help them get to a destination that would have been much more complicated uh, before the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, I
1: I definitely agree with that.
2: Um, So, so. Where does change start? It starts within. Um, <laughs> as cheesy as it sounds, it's very true, right? Um, because if you think about it, the people who have the most power in any company, for profit, nonprofit, whatever it is, are leaders. And leaders have the most influential change. So if leaders are not holding themselves accountable, then nothing will happen. And it's not just for, you know, diversity all the way through to anti-racism. It's the same for any type of, you know. Organizational change that's out there, right? And so what we encourage our leaders to do for the clients we work with is for them to act accordingly, to show up and act, meaning accountability, communication, and transparency. So... A common thing that happens with leaders and the change that has to start within is that leaders want to be the best at things. We have ego that's around. We are experts at things. We don't want to necessarily admit when we're wrong. But if you think about accountability, communication and transparency, being vulnerable and saying like, you know what, I'm not an expert in diversity, so let me partner with my people and culture person, or maybe a head of diversity, if they have that individual, let me bring in a a consulting firm to work on that. Let me role model that I'm also figuring stuff out too. And that is the true power. And so if individuals don't address their own experiences, their lived experiences, their internalized, externalized experiences um, that develop their bias, their stereotypes, um, and that's where discrimination lives, then none of the change will happen with diversity.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about like how do you what do you, how do you work with the company, right? How does somebody like what does it mean to work with with Change Today or another similar organization? Like, what does that mean?
2: Um, it means you're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to be pushed. <laughs> um, and you're going to be held accountable for what you want to do, right? So a lot of our engagements fall in four buckets. So one is strategic planning. And so in strategic planning, we may be helping them from zero to figure out their diversity strategy or a pivot because we're still pivoting in 2021. That has not stopped, right? So we'll we'll do that. Um, that will sometimes include a needs assessment. What data do you have? And data looks like exit interviews, surveys, surveys. Um, Any stats that we can garnish, looking at policies, practices, procedures to develop a roadmap for them or help them develop a roadmap. We also provide executive coaching. So again, going inward, we work exclusively with people who have influence because they have the most change, right? Me, broken record. So we work with them either individually or in groups. Um, Group coaching is incredibly effective because going back to ego and transparency and role modeling, leaders can learn from each other. We also provide workshops. Um, So workshops around power and privilege, how to be an accomplice in the workplace. And the list goes on and on. Also ACT. We have a workshop on ACT, allyship journeys, so that people can learn what to do. We only do workshops because workshops focus on individual behavior. We do not do trainings. Fun fact, training set people up for success because it's like, okay, you're gonna do this training for two hours, four hours, two days, whatever it is. And then you go back into your virtual or actual workspace and then the culture isn't set up for what you learned in training. So that's why we focus on um, individual uh, behavior. And then the fourth thing we do that John shared is, is we do crisis management and crisis recovery. So something goes down and we come in and we help them move past that, You know, hold themselves accountable, problem solve, and correct behavior. That's really when I get to be the Olivia Pope. And it's like, it's very fun. And even though I can't go outside and have fashionable jackets and bags, I do from the top up.
1: (laughs) And you can have popcorn and wine and sometimes that's enough.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. That's how I decompress. (laughs) But honestly, we're different from a lot of uh, diversity consulting firms because, one, I do use a lot of humor. And I do meet people where they are, right? i We are not prescriptive. We aren't saying, hey, you have to do A, B, C to get to your outcome. That doesn't make any sense because of so many different variables um, in the workplace. So we have a reciprocal relationship that allows us to, yeah, be experts and tell them things, but they're the experts of their culture and we learn from each other.
1: I love it. Um, so when, when should companies bring in a DEI expert?
2: Oh, well, I mean, there's multiple points of entry for us, unfortunately, a lot of it is in crisis management. And we had a lot of that uh, after the murder of George Floyd, because the attempt was, I'm going to make a statement um, internally, externally, or both, and it didn't work out for them. So crisis management, you know, helping them get on the right path, but it's the best time to bring in a diversity consultant is when you're thinking and ready for, you don't have to be hundred percent there, but ready for organizational change. That's all it is, is organizational change. Are people open to that? So that you can start to think about your company future state. We are in the business of firing all the white leaders and <laughs> executive roles because people still have a business to run. We, I run a business, I totally understand that, money is important, but we're in the business of the long-term game. So if they're ready for change, ready to be patient with themselves um, and ready to hold people accountable. That's the best time to bring in a consultant. Otherwise they're putting people in a stop start situation that either results in initiative fatigue, change fatigue. And for BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, um, it puts them in a position where they're like, oh, some, Oh, no, it's not gonna happen. Oh, some, oh, no, it's not gonna happen. And that's hard to take, right? Especially if some of those individuals, particularly black people from last year, continuing to this year are already carrying additional work, maybe tokenized doing the work. Um, it's a real letdown.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. So does wanting to improve DEI in your organization mean that your organization is just a terrible, bad, racist place, and that if you show up, it means that they're horrible and basically beyond repair? Or, you know, can you start before
2: that? You definitely start before that. Um, People who feel like bringing a consultant means that, you know, the company or the org is uh, you know, racist, that's not true. That means leadership is not ready <laughs> to bring someone in. The, again, the best time to bring someone in is like, we wanna make sure that we are creating a place of belonging where everyone feels valued and appreciated for who they are from the period of application all the way through past their 30 60 90 you know and being there that is the exact goal if people are saying like we don't want our clients or customers or consumers or employees or team members to think that we're racist they're actually centering themselves right and because we know the majority of leaders are white leaders we call that white centering so it's like oof, i'm uncomfortable so I don't want people to think that I don't know something. So I'm going to make it, you know, about myself so I can go back to what I know. And that's not the goal. The goal is for that white person to feel valued and appreciated. And that Latinx or Hispanic person or black person or disabled person, someone from the LGBTQ plus community to also feel this same way. It's not taking from other people. It's having that equality across the board. I love it. Um, so you
1: know, people should be you know working with orgs like you are as early and often and 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 making this like a real sort of big commitment, you know financial and otherwise. But if somebody's watching this and they're like, that's awesome, but i'm I'm not the person in charge. I can't or you know, budgets at my company are such that we we can't bring anybody in we can barely pay ourselves like what are some of the things that people can do, you know, immediately or freely and, and where, you know, hey, I have to wait to next year's board meeting or budgets aren't, aren't a problem.
2: So there's lots of things that people can do. Um, and I just wanna point out that the goal is to get to the point of institutionalizing diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, anti-racism and day to day. And that can be done with big things and then also can be done with little things. So some of those little things, or the free 99 things, I like to say, um, are one, setting up a resource library. Someone, anyone, you can open up a file. Hear me out, a file, <laughs> box, drive, whatever it is. And people can share podcasts, articles, books, links, whatever in this resource guide so people can you know discuss it. Also for free 99, Um, virtual lunch and learns or in-person lunch and learns, people can talk about those very resources. Like, hey, this month, if everyone, you know, listens to this podcast at this lunch and learn, let's have a discussion about it. Like, I don't know what's coming up for me. You don't know what's coming up for you, but let's have some ground rules. So it's a safe space. And let's talk about it. Right. Because it's having that. Um, opportunity to ingrain in daily practice in life, to to celebrate that feeling and experience of learning and unlearning. Another thing that can be done that is uh, very, pretty cost-effective is that I have the Ally Nudge, um, and the Ally Nudge is text messages two to three times a week. Um, Each day, you get a morning prompt that's like, educational, Something. It's either a video of me doing this um, or a link to a podcast or whatever it is. And in the evening, you get an action prompt text directly correlated to what you're learning about in the morning. So we have police brutality, stuff around kids, um, definitions of anti-racism, and it's $5 per person. So people can sign up for that. It's very cost effective to bring people in. Uh, people also will do you know, lunch and learn activities around that, book club activities around that. Um, and then one thing that's also free and great is Icebreaker. So Icebreaker, there's modules that are already there um, and people can go through training content and have conversations with each other with video, without video and discuss what's coming up from, the, from um, prompts that I set up. So if anyone's done a game and house party or any type of card question game, it's done in a virtual capacity that can be done for a team or a whole department. There is an insane amount of free content that's out there that people can use to create. You just have to identify the point person or persons to do that. And last, people can create a culture committee or diversity committee, whatever they want to call it, and share that responsibility of educating um, the team.
1: I love it. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, we were talking about this the other day. Uh, there's definitely a feeling, I think, that for a lot of a lot of underrepresented minorities that were sort of over-mentored um, and, and kind of under-sponsored. Um, so talk a little bit about the difference uh, between those two things and, and how people can be
2: better sponsors, not just mentors. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about is a difference of action, right? and having actions and words match. We all, you know, if you're in some form of of leadership or, you know, you're established in one way or another, you've come to a point where you're mentoring other people. And mentoring is great. I love mentoring, it's fantastic. But when we think about sponsorship, it's taking it to the next level of action, meaning who can I actually connect this person to? What resources can I put into them? Whether, you know, it's money or the network so that they can build whatever they're building or amplify in a way they need to be amplified. It's adding accountability to the mentorship part. It's so easy for us to be like, oh my God, let's check in a couple times a year. You know, it'd be great to really being an accountability partner, sponsorship of that person who needs to get somewhere. This is incredibly important for people who um, don't have access to the network, are low income, didn't go to a certain college. Like I went to all state schools, and look at me, it works out. You know, I don't come from clubs, <laughs> Ivy, mean anything, right? And and supporting those individuals and doing what those types of colleges do to set individuals up for success. And I think the, the last thing that a lot of leaders uh, will struggle with is when you're in a position of sponsorship, um, it allows you to not only change someone's trajectory, particularly for BIPOC people, low income people, people who don't have that certain amount of status, but it reminds you the importance of the privilege that you have and the power that comes along with it. Like we all have privilege regardless of how we identify, but if you're using that privilege for good in ways to literally transform someone else's life, um, that's a wonderful way of, of you know, free diversity, equity, inclusion um, and, and belonging in a one-on-one basis.
1: Yeah. I love that. Um, so uh, tell us about your shirt.
2: Tell us about do the work. So do the work. You were all getting a sneak peek. These aren't even released yet, but they'll be coming out soon. I have do the work shirts and now crew Next, um that will come out. And, um, you know, so I used to be a preschool teacher. <laughs> so I, this is probably why I am the way I am now. Um, but there's lots of ways in which people learn, right? And so when you have a message on the shirt, it either creates conversation, it's a reminder or it's a point of celebration, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you have that on, you're like, you know what, I'm doing the work. I remind people to do the work. People are telling other people to do the work. And it's just a way to get that message out there. We do the work isn't my thing, but it's a thing that needs to happen for all of us not just for white people, not just for black people, everyone have to continuously do the work to learn and unlearn, grow and hold each other accountable. I also have keeping amazing, which is my mantra, (laughs) which I I need because this work is incredibly heavy and hard to do. I'm a black woman. I'm traumatized on the regular, uh, just, just talking to clients. And so I remind myself to keep being amazing. It's also my phone case, just to keep being amazing. And it's the same thing. If people see that message, because it is hard, particularly for people who are new to this, it is hard. If they can remind themselves to keep being amazing, if Black people can find ways to celebrate themselves and through all the adversity that we have in America, keeping amazing, it's a powerful thing. I love it. Awesome. John, what questions do you have?
0: I have a lot of questions, uh, but one of the things that's been uh, great for me, you know, I I grew up in a city, Durham, North Carolina, that is very diverse. And it's actually ironic that uh, in a state that I would say, you know, is a little more of a red state, you could say North Carolina. I actually grew up in an environment where uh, there was more mixing of races and I was exposed. I had friends of all races, uh, colors and creeds. But then you go to places, I live in New York now in Long Island, where there's this homogeneity that exists and it's not necessarily a conscious de- decision that people make. Like I don't want to be around Hispanic people, or I don't want to be around Black people. But people just sort of settle into you know, a comfort zone, uh, and they, they don't necessarily have any motivation to get out of it. And they're not conscious of sort of the uh, the subtle racism that exists in everyday life uh, when they walk into a store and somebody looks at them, or when they're you know walking across the street and somebody you know moves out of the way because they don't want to be near them. and it, I think the conversation that was started by some of these tragic events that have happened over the last couple of years and the way people in the black community in particular stepped up to the plate and said, you know, we're no longer going to accept the status quo. I think it's been amazing to see. But in terms of the hiring uh, processes that companies go through, I've always found it interesting. And there's been a lot written and and spoken about in terms of uh, colorblind hiring practices and truly eliminating unconscious biases that exist. You talked about your former boss. Uh, Doctor Kaday, who made a statement, he an older guy. You know, you, I'm going to be nice to him and say he's old-fashioned. But uh, people have just these unconscious biases that exist. Some people say them out loud, and some people don't. But how, when you're going through a hiring process, if let's say you don't take the step to to have an affirmative action style of hiring process, where you're going out and saying, "Okay, we're we're an organization that's 80% white. Let's hire 10 black people to balance that out, so that our board." Uh, doesn't get mad at us. How do you truly take it to a colorblind hiring process and ask questions and interact with people in a way uh, that you're eliminating uh, these preconceived notions that you might have in your head?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I want to say I miss I miss New York. This is the longest I've gone without being there. I'm Haitian, so half my family is there. I heard it's doing well. Um,
0: well, <laughs> so and the you know, homogenous yeah. yeah, it's had a tough time in COVID, but I hopefully it bounces back. And you know, I, I love the city despite being a little bit of a country boy. But uh, you know, I, I want to see the city bounce back, obviously.
2: You made the, the big switch. I left Sacramento, California to be in the bag. And let me tell you, I was like, wow, this is a real downtown. <laughs> there was a shift um, that was there. So it's not about um affirmative action, it's it's not about um being colorblind because Um, When people are doing colorblind hiring practices, that's the same as saying, like, I don't see color. And when people say I don't see color, I always ask them, what do you do at a stoplight? Is it just... All red lines it sounds like something me.
0: Michael Scott Michael Scott would say on the yeah. office yeah.
2: yeah it's it's uh, episode two um, when they do the diversity day um, right. two or three or something like that which is a great episode it's a teaching moment free tool Sarah um, we can have a discussion around that so you know when people are saying like colorblind I don't see color what they're saying is is like I'm so privileged that I don't want to consider that right at all I'm ignoring what the experience is like for myself or for Sarah not saying this of you John but that's what comes up from companies. And so when you do have companies that are 80, 90% um, white, what happens is the dominant culture of that workplace is white. So as soon as they hire someone like us to come in, we are already othered. We're going to receive those microaggressions, right? That you're talking about those statements, those little statements and actions crossing the street. Like, how do you, is that all your hair? And how do you do, how long does it take to curl it like that? Not realizing that this is, what my hair looks like after I wash it. Like, you know, um, those types of statements, those um, small percentages of BIPOC people will have to deal with that all the time. So the way that companies should think about their hiring practices, their recruitment practices is one, determining a metric that's realistic. Again, like I said earlier, don't just fire all your white leaders. That doesn't make any sense. But as you think about succession planning, who do you have lined up that can go into that role? How are you thinking differently? Take some time to look at middle management. Middle management is a great way to not only coach someone, but to get to know how they work, to move them into senior and executive roles, right? So think about, you know, having recruitment around in that area. But the most important thing, what you said, John, is to look at ways to minimize bias. You cannot completely get rid of bias, which is hard to do, like, I'm a twin, I'm biased towards twins. As someone said they were twin in the interview, we were going on a tangent. Are you older or younger? How many minutes apart? Brother or sister, do you like each other? You know, that's like a whole thing. So there's value in that. You know, it's a positive thing, but it's done in a negative way to keep hiring people that look like you and look like you ties back to the majority of the workplace, then that's an issue. So what are some uh, questions that people are asking in the interview process? What of the application, um, what do they have in there about their diversity statement or how they're on a diversity journey? Are they making their application already biased in a way that says you have to have four years of education or can you have lived experience? Do you need to have a technical degree or not? Do you have a suggestion for time frame or someone open to learning? And all of those are ways in which uh, people can work to diversify their workplace.
0: That's great. And you can strip out the company names here, obviously. I don't want to break anyone's privacy. But are there examples where you've either gone into a crisis situation, or it could be somebody who it wasn't a crisis, and you you came in and you helped re-engineer their culture uh, in an effective way, the way that I think you would uh, hope and dream to change organizations? Are there any specific cases, case studies that you could talk about where it worked really well so people could visualize what that looks like if they're sitting here watching and they want to, you know, undergo this change, but they don't know what the path is to getting there.
2: Yeah. I mean, so the, the, the wonderful case studies we have, like the Disneyland example, if you will, is that the highest level leader is on board. They're like, look, I may be part of the problem. I'm white. I don't know. How can we get better aligned to be more diverse? So when we work with leaders like that, automatically we're changing the recruitment process. Automatically, in addition to like the in- recruitment process, the interview process will have um, always two people interviewing minimum. Because when you have two people interview minimum, then it minimizes bias. Because if someone's like, "Oof, that Akila reminds me of this person I dated, so thus, therefore, I'm not gonna listen to them. The other person's gonna be like, well, actually, they were really likable, you know? And so it's a way for accountability um, in that process. And then we will automatically have external and public statements, diversity um, definitions, so diversity terms of definitions, updated values, um, and improved policies and procedures. So when we get to do that with our clients, the outcome is everything. And that stems again from the executive leader. We've had situations where I've had to be the Olivia Pope and come in and do crisis management. And that is harder because that means that at least two leaders didn't agree on the same outcome of how to respond to something. So for example, um, anytime there's, I hate to say anytime, but when there's a tragic event that happens, whether it's the insurrection or a murder of a black person or maiming or whatever it is, um, we always tell our clients that they have to have boilerplate Uh, templates ready to go to email their team so they can remind them if you need screen off time, if you need to take time off, you can talk to your manager. You have employee assistance programs. We're going to have a chat with the diversity committee later this week. We'll have those messages. So we had a client who did that. Perfect. Beautiful message. Sign off for the rest of the day. It's too much. And then that leader kept working, kept sending emails. So you can only imagine both of you what that's like when it's like, I have the permission to just figure out what's happening right now, just to take care of myself and then feel like I'm behind. And now I need to do that. So as soon as we have leaders who aren't ready to role model the behavior in which they've communicated, again, the actions and words aren't matching, that is incredibly challenging. So that means our engagement may actually (laughs) extend um, to help with that behavior change. Well,
0: that's fantastic and uh, I'm so glad you know, One of the reasons why we brought Sarah in as a guest host is we wanted to meet new and different types of people that wouldn't necessarily be the first people that we called. And by us meeting you and getting to know you and, and exposing our audience uh, to different points of view, we hope to create sort of virality of these types of perspectives and these types of initiatives that I feel like are accelerating in the wake of some of these tragic events, uh, as you mentioned. But obviously, there's a huge hill to climb and we need more allies and more soldiers of change, or cadets of change, if you will. You know, Darcy, my last name uh, has French origins as well, uh, from a certain it. region it's of France. Like so we're brothers and sisters. That was
2: fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: we're, we're brothers and sisters. So thank you so much for, much for joining us. Yeah, yeah thank you for having an open have great mind. Hair.
1: And,
0: uh, thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, my mother would agree, but um, anyways. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much again for joining us. Hopefully, you can uh, we can do more business with you in the future, uh, both at Skybridge and introducing you to other people in our community. And we can get you to one of our live events as well. I think it's also something that we've struggled with in the industry, the financial industry. That you know, let's be honest with ourselves. Whether it's venture capital or hedge funds, overwhelmingly white, and it's just hard to break. It's almost like trying to break the cycle of poverty, breaking the cycle of you know extreme uh, whiteness in these yeah. industries where. You know, we try to put uh, people of color and women on our stages at our conferences uh, without it being tokenism. And we've gotten better at that, but we can we can definitely do a better job. And the more people like that we put on stages and the more people like you uh, that come to our conferences and talk about these things, the more people of color and the more women feel comfortable showing up and it feeds on itself uh, and it has a sort of a snowball effect. So that's what we're looking to create. We've done better at it. And I think we do better than a lot of people in the industry. But again, we have a a huge way to go to improve uh, everything that we're doing. So thanks again.
2: You're very welcome. And I just have to say the allyship that's happening uh, is fantastic. The hardest clients to work with, or they aren't ready are typically hedge funds, you know, and in the financial space for those very reasons. So what you're doing is really important to inform them of different ways in which they can show up, either, you know, doing things for free or bringing in the consultant. And then Sarah, is always doing things in partnership where we work together, she's keeping me abreast of things and any way I can step in and help her out in any way is great, but just her being in her space um, is an act of resistance, but it's another way to change the way people are thinking about um, financing. So thank you both for your wonderful allyship. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you again, Dr. Cade, and thank you, Sarah, again, uh, for bringing all these great guests to us here on Salt Talks and, and for hosting these talks. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Just by tuning in and watching this episode and watching it all the way through, you know, I think sometimes there's people when when these topics come up at a conference or, or on a, a digital interview like this, some people turn because they don't, they, they turn the channel because they don't want to feel the discomfort that comes with confronting some of these issues. So thank you, everybody, for watching uh, and tuning in. You're contributing to uh, you know, the betterment of society by doing that. Uh, and just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, including several that we've done with Sarah, you can both access our entire archive of SALT Talks and sign up for all of our future talks on our website at salt.org backslash talks. Please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And on YouTube is where we host uh, all of our videos for free. You know We like some people in the industry, uh, gate content and and try to sell subscriptions to these types of conversations. We don't believe in that at all. We want to make all these interviews that we do open to the public and and an educational resource uh, for people, not just in the financial industry, but in in our communities as a whole. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here again soon on SALT Talks.